Southwestern family of companies welcomes you to the Action Catalyst. Each week, our diversely and amazingly accomplished guests share their insights and inspirations to help us ignite our own. So let's invest attention together to breathe, to reflect and refocus, and decisively defeat that voice we call Mr. Mediocrity. Then let's enjoy moving forward to make a positive difference in our world. Are you interested in advertising with the Action Catalyst? Our listeners could be hearing about your brand right here, right now. For details, shoot us an email at info at theactioncatalyst.com. Welcome to the Action Catalyst. And we are very grateful today to have as our guest, Mr. Jim Fannin. You know, sometimes we talk about people building a resume and say, when you really have a lot to do, you can't fit it on a page. Well, I took a look at Jim's bio. It's 21 pages and growing by the minute. And it's not just blowing smoke. This is Jim's contribution to helping people become more successful throughout their lives. He grew up in the Ashland, Kentucky, which he'll tell us a little bit about, although currently resides in Chicago. And it is a career of achievement and most importantly, of transferring his coaching skills to helping other people become incredibly capable of what they do. He's developed the SCORE system that helps people stay in the zone in all aspects of their lives. And we'll ask him to share a little bit about that, as well as the, the twists and turns, the joys and the triumphs, the frustrations of, of a wonderful career that is continuing faster than ever. So, Jim Fannin, welcome to the Action Catalyst. Oh, it's my pleasure. I'm glad to be here. Well, this is just wonderful. Would you mind kind of going through the high points of, of your bio? You know, there were influences on you and directions that, that you took that have led to this. Well, my, my parents... Uh, Never heard him say a negative word, nor nor a swear word. How about that? And uh, uh, so that's kind of unusual. And uh, and uh, so they they were always encouraging me to take it to the next level. Um, gave me really no parameters of what I could do, lim- unlimited. And then um, in my early years, at age eleven, I met Professor R. W. Ross. African-American, 80-some years old when I met him. Uh, He spoke quietly, firmly, and uh, he taught me how to play tennis first time. And um, uh, he also taught me uh, how to coach, and he taught me about life and uh, how to keep things simple. And then my grandfather, uh, who was uh, the moonshiner and the sheriff of Letcher County in eastern Kentucky, southeastern Kentucky. Um, he taught me how to daydream. Uh, and he also taught me uh, a pretty important skill. I still use it today. Uh, at the age of four and five, he would blindfold me and literally take me into the woods of Appalachia. And I'd count as high as I could. He said he would be gone back to the house. He'd disappear. Uh, of course, uh, my grandmother would have beat him over the head if he had left me out there alone. So he was always nearby, but he taught me, uh, you're never lost. You just haven't found your way. And the first thing he said when I took the blindfold off to breathe, relax. And he taught me how to adapt to the situation or the condition or the circumstance, but you're never lost. You just haven't found your way. And then he told me, go to higher ground. So what what do you mean, Papa? Well, get up on a rock or climb on a hill or get up on a tree. And from that viewpoint, you'll be able to 
find your way home. You may see your house and see, uh, see how the crow flies and get there. I said, but Papa, what happens if I'm in the desert and there's no, nothing to climb? He said, look where water was or where water is and follow it because it's going home. And I, I, uh, I've traveled all over the world. I've never felt ever that I was lost in my life. It's literally, geographically, or, or mentally, uh, because I always adapt and adjust. Uh, thank you, Grandpa, and uh, thank you, Professor R.W. Ross, also for giving me uh, coaching skills at 11. I was uh, trained to teach the five, six-year-old children in tennis. The professor... Uh, went on to be in the Hall of Fame in Kentucky. And uh, so uh, I've had some interesting mentors in my life to help me escape poverty. I was raised on a dirt floor, outhouse, well water, uh, initially no electricity. But I said, Mom, Mommy, are we poor? Are you hungry? No. Well, then you're not poor. Uh, okay. Uh, but I, I don't have a floor. And I had a mattress on the floor, but it was dirt floor. And I said, Mommy, are we poor? And she said, you know, that Etch-A-Sketch game that you always wanted? I said, yes. She said, you got the world's largest Etch-A-Sketch game. (laughs) And she took me in uh, my room and we played tic-tac-toe and drew pictures. And uh, uh, yeah, I never knew I was poor. So I I was raised for possibility. And what's my next move? And all of that, of course, has played out in some of the things that you've done. Uh, For our listeners that may not know, you started the Tennis Tots program, which helped more than a quarter million students become great at tennis, 350 franchise locations all over the world, from an early experience of your parents saying you can do anything that you want, which is amazing. And and the other mindset, you don't know me. I, I, I paid several thousand dollars to the chair of the Ohio State Marketing uh, Department uh, when I was trying to franchise my kids program. And uh, I just done a research at Ohio State on how to maximize super learning in children. And I discovered five markers uh, that we all possess, self-discipline, concentration, optimism, relaxation, enjoyment. That's the rudiments or building blocks of my score system. And that triggers natural chemistry. And uh, when all the chemicals from cortisol to dopamine uh, flood the bloodstream, you get into a zone state. And I discovered that doing a research project initially with 250 kids at Ohio State. And that's where the tennis tot program was born. So I took it to the marketing chair to say, I want to franchise this. I'm in my 20s. You know, what do I know about franchising? And I just come off the pro tour. I was there a year. And um, and he looked me in the eye and he goes, it's not going to happen. And I paid him all this money and, and he gave me a big no and a red flag. And he painted all the obstacles. And I remember leaving the meeting thinking, you don't know me. You don't know my heart. You don't know my soul. You, you don't know my program. And, and then uh, 250,000 kids later and 43 franchises in Chicago alone. That's really the only reason I came to Chicago. I, I had so much business up here. I figured I better uh, get up here. And uh, uh, that was a blessing because with the tennis taught program, only five kids in a class, 
Uh, and we were teaching self-discipline, concentration, optimism, relaxation, enjoyment with tennis as a vehicle. A thousand teachers all over the world. And um, I started doing parent seminars. Mm-hmm. And the parents would raise their hand and say, does this work for insurance? And, you know, I'm young and naive. And I said, absolutely. So the next thing I, I know, I'm coaching an insurance company. And uh, this is, does this work for politics? And I said, yes. And I said, a city can have a score level. A city can be in the zone. And next thing I know, I'm coaching the governor of Ohio in my 20s. And uh, uh, does this work for golf? Uh, an attorney agent asked me in one of the seminars in Chicago, and I said, yeah, this will work for golf. You need to get in the zone. And uh, it was an agent for Gary Hallberg, who was top junior in the world, four-time All-American at Wake Forest. And uh, next thing I know, I'm coaching Gary Hallberg on the golf tour, and he became Rookie of the Year. And this worked for baseball. It was a minor owner of the White Sox. And I, you know, I, I said, yeah, absolutely. And the uh, next thing I know, I'm coaching Ron Karkovice, uh, backup catcher for Carlton Fisk for the uh, Chicago White Sox. So, you know, it, it spawned from a little kids program, uh, which was so much fun. Uh, but it spawned into uh, coaching 50 industries now and 10 professional sports. And um, I guess I am the original sports psychologists it, it didn't even exist that term uh in the 70s or uh, uh there were a few executive coaches there were zero life coaches that didn't exist mm-hmm. so yeah i've been pioneering uh, the coaching field ever since which is absolutely phenomenal in fact many of our listeners will be amazed to hear you have actually coached two entire cities uh your your hometown and another one to change how they view there. Well, that was uh, that was a challenge. That was fun. I coached Bridgeview, Illinois. I coached the mayor. I coached the uh, uh, superintendent. Uh, uh, the uh, uh, all the different departments, and then uh, went and coached the uh, village itself. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, it's just a few minutes. It's a suburb of uh, Chicago, and then really the blessing was to go back to Ashland, Kentucky. Um, last summer, I, I spent almost two weeks there coaching four high schools and doing free seminars. I got an article in the paper. Un- unfortunately, Ashland, Huntington, that tri-state area, um, a Gallup poll deemed it the most depressed, saddest place in the United States. And that hurt me to the, to my heart. Mm-hmm. And that was my hometown where I was raised and went to high school and I had to go back and uh, my new book, The Blueprint, um, which is about all my clients, how I created with them their own life blueprint, showed them how to manifest it. So I gave my blueprint, all the libraries and the schools and the public school. And, you know, I'm just doing my part to, to help out. I, I want nothing in return, but a lot of smiles and a lot of positivity. That's the only thing I, I, I request. I think that's fantastic. Well, you mentioned to me before we went on air a story about your father showing you the two most likely career options when you grew up where you grew up. Well, I I asked my dad, I said, you know, how am I going to go to college? And he goes, well, don't look at me. I don't have any answers for that. 
And in fact, who says you're going to college? Mm-hmm. You're, you're probably going to work in the local mine. And uh, I'd never been in a mine, and he took me down into the bowels of a mine, and it, it was hard to breathe. Uh, you could tell it was dangerous. You could see collapses along the way that it happened. I knew a lot of men had died in this very mine. And my father said, this is where you're going to work. And I thought, oh, you don't know me, Dad. <laughs> and uh, and then he took me down to Armco Steel in Ashland. Uh, there were some old men. That, they were actually 40 at the time. <laughs> but they were, uh, you know, I'm a young man. He, he took me in there. It was about 120 degrees. Uh, they had these big giant tongs flipping big sheets of steel. They were flopping sheets. He said, you'll get you a good job in here flopping sheets. I had a lot of friends in there. It was so hot. And I thought, oh, man, Daddy, you don't know me. Uh, I, I will never work in Armco Steel or that mine. And, and uh, I said, well, how am I going to go to college? He said, well, you either work or you get a scholarship. And uh, I parlayed uh, athletic ability into a tennis scholarship. I went to East Tennessee, not a little bit down the road uh, east of Nashville, obviously. And uh, I went there and won the conference there and um, conference champion. That, at the time, they were in the OBC and then went out on the pro tour. So, um, you know, I've had that you don't know me. Uh, in fact, that was my message when I went to all the high schools in Ashland. Uh, I said, you're, you're the same as I am. I, I had the same background. But I thought, you don't know who I am. You don't know my heart. You can tell me I'm from Kentucky and I can't make it. Or you can tell me you don't have any money. But, you know, they don't know you. They don't know your inner you. And that, that's the real you that counts. And to go from that spectrum of looking in the mine, looking in the steel mill, to eventually coaching three baseball Hall of Famers who give you tremendous credit for their success, including... Uh, Jim Thome, Frank Thomas, and the big unit, Randy Johnson. Uh, yeah, that was, uh, that's special. Um, I grew up watching the Cincinnati Reds. I'm actually now coaching a right a center fielder for the Reds, Scott Shabler. But I'll tell you a story about Frank Thomas very quickly. Um, Chicago White Sox were in the dugout his rookie year. And I ask him, like I ask all my prospective clients, so what do you want? Why am I here? What's the point? And he looked me, he looked me cold in the eye. And I've only had two people do this in all my career. Hall of Fame. I'm like, Hall of Fame? I said, man, that's going to cost you. <laughs> and he started laughing. He goes, well, what's your fee? I said, my fee? I said, you'll be paying me out of chump change out of the front pocket. Uh, forget my fee. You make so much money, but you're going to have to sacrifice. There's a price to the Hall of Fame 20 years from now. You're going to miss your wedding anniversary on some days. He goes, well, I don't even have a girlfriend. I said, Frank, you may have three wives. I hope you don't by the time you get to the Hall of Fame. You're going to miss your daughter's birthday party. He said, I don't have any kids. I said, you may have 20 kids. Hopefully you don't have that many by the time you get to the hall. But abnormal dreams require abnormal thinking. You can't think like you've been thinking, and uh, you're going to have to think actually less, not more. But what you do think 
has to be extreme positivity. I said, when you walk up to the plate, there's going to be somebody in our audience that's never seen a baseball game. There's going to be a little boy with his father that's going to carry that memory for a lifetime, and they're going to see you up to the plate. So you got to be a Hall of Famer now, long before you actually reach the Hall. Have you ever been to Cooperstown? I asked Frank. He said, I, I have. That's where the induction, that's where the hall resides, Cooperstown, New York. He said, I, I played an all-star game there. I said, well, shut your eyes. Right now, we're in the dugout. No one's around. Two in the afternoon. Game's not till seven. So Frank shuts his eyes and starts visualizing the induction speech. And he started giving the induction speech. He's a rookie. He only been playing a few days in Major League Baseball. While he's mentally doing his dress rehearsal Hall of Fame speech, I shut my eyes and I was in the front row listening to it. And um, it was pretty surreal 20 years later when he's given the speech and he shouts out my name and um, he looked at me and um, we just both started crying. <laughs> well, sure you did. I still tear up. Yeah, visualization is, it's, it's your listeners. It's their number one most important tool. We visualize every day, uh, whether you believe in visualization or not. If you're hungry and you want a cheeseburger, you may see a golden arch or maybe you see fries. That's visualization. And 65% of everyone's thought is visualization and chaos, where you start thinking all kinds of stuff throughout the day. But most of us, unfortunately, we spend 80% of our thoughts visualizing the future and the past, and we're only in the moment 20% of the time. Now, if I can go back to that research at Ohio State that I did, from birth to five, you learn more in that 60 months than the rest of your life accumulative. That's because you spend 80% of your time in the moment. And you spend 100% of your time in the moment, you're one, you're two, you're three. Uh, and then gradually uh, to age five, here comes the past. I told you not to do that. Here comes the future. You'll never be like your brother. Uh, but for that first 60 months, 80% uh, of your thoughts were in the moment as opposed to an adult. 80% of our thoughts are in the future and the past. So. You know, if you want to be the genuine, authentic, best self you can be, you need to be a kid again and uh, start thinking more about being in the moment. And, and that's the whole point of my book last year, The Blueprint. Um, if you have a blueprint of every aspect of your life, it's well fleshed out. And that's what I do for my clients. Uh, with visions, goals, tasks, even knowing the key people in every arena of your life. And um, once you have that blueprint, and um, now you can be more in the moment to allow it to manifest. And then I also, I learned something early on that, you know, you've been taught and everybody listens has been taught, here's A, here's B, go to A to B. The best in the world do not go A to B. They go directly to B. They see it as if it's so. They see it as it will be. And then they do something very unusual. They reverse engineer 
Crumby chronologically. So you want to lose 20 pounds in 90 days? What are you doing day 89? What are you eating? What are you exercising? Day 88, 87, 86. Get the calendar out. Reverse engineer it. And now it brings you back to day number one. Here I am. And what, what that does, it illuminates a pathway like a runway at Chicago O'Hare at night. When you reverse engineer it, it takes you all the way to the vision. And then that illuminated pathway, if I get off track, well, I can easily get back on because I've seen the light, literally. And um, I do that for every client, every arena of their life. Uh, we use the B to A principle. Mm-hmm. It's really claiming the future, walking it back, and then say, I'm at the beginning of that path. Now, let me let me do what I need to do at the beginning. And and now, you, you know, you also have a pathway to adjust from if you need to. I, yes. I'm definitely a proponent. You need to be prepared to adjust or adapt, uh, but you always need to adhere to your principles. That, that's my triple A in emergency. Uh, you better adjust real quick or adapt real quick, but always adhere to your principles. Triple A, you got to have triple A. So uh, we use triple A to keep back, keep on our uh, pathway, our blueprint. It's phenomenal. Uh, Jim, you, you think so big and you think very long-term, you help people think long-term. And yet a core of what you teach people is to realize the power of 90 seconds. 90 seconds. Can you share some examples of uh, people getting back together after traveling or or the breathe like a baby? These are just amazing concepts. Well, I I have a little book on 90 seconds to maximize to to a great relationship. And uh, I'll give you one tip out of that book. If you've been away from somebody you love or care about at least two hours, the first 90 seconds you see them has more impact on the relationship even if you spend hours and hours with them later. Put your cell phone down in the driveway. Close that part of your life. Close your business. Just shut it down and be present. And when the door opens, uh, if it's your significant other, look her or him in the eye long enough to discern eye color. Now, the first time you do that, they're going to say, are you okay? What, what, What are you up to? What's wrong? Uh, you're going to find you don't look your significant other in the eye long enough to discern eye color when you've been away that long. And there's a technique inside this 90 seconds called mirroring, like a mirror on the wall. If he or she's sad, then are you okay? Now, I don't want to be sad with her, but I'm going down to the basement so I can walk her up to some positivity. And if she's happy, I'm, I'm going to be happy. So I'm going to mirror whatever her reactions are. And if you have little kids, hold up. Let let me hug mommy. Let me hug daddy. Because right now you're training your kid on how to treat their significant other 20, 30 years from now. You're also treating them how to have respect for mom or dad. So don't violate that 90-second rule. And and that's the same as when you go into work in the morning. Walk the garden if you're a leader. If you run a division or a department, walk around. Give everybody 90 seconds. Look them in the eye. 
long enough to discern eye color and ask questions because I really believe the greatest symbol on this planet, and some will say, well, isn't it the cross? I said, well, the cross, that's that's an incredible symbol. There's no question about it. And there's other symbols that are pretty amazing. But the question mark is said by millions every second. It's the greatest symbol. And uh, ask great questions. You can guide someone into their future. Ask great questions. You can guide somebody into learning or analyzing or evaluating what just transpired in the past. So questions are great. So in that 90 seconds, ask some great questions about them, their family, uh, what they did on the weekend. So that 90 seconds, walk the garden of your company. You can get your coffee and check your mail and social media. You can do that long after you make those human connections. I think that's phenomenal. Jim, along the way, you undoubtedly were rolling right along and then all of a sudden a roadblock that you had not anticipated something that was a brick wall. In fact, just you didn't know how to get around it or under it. What, what have you dealt with that would, that really just tested you and and what lessons did you come out from that that we can share? You know, my research at Ohio state in 1974, um, I know the chair of the department of marketing, that was a roadblock. And I thought, you don't know me. And then I had another one. I, I, I wanted to write a book about what I had learned uh, from the research. And I got so many naysayers. You, well, you can't write a book. And I said, well, why? Because I'm from Kentucky. I said, you know, we, we know how to read and write down there. And uh, people laughed, said, no, you just don't have an agent. No, I don't. Well, you don't know any publishers. And, and you've never written a book. And, and I thought, you don't know me. And I had a vision. I wrote an outline um, by coincidence, which I don't believe in. I, I started visualizing not a book. I visualized not even people reading the book. I visualized people taking the contents of the book and using it to be better parents and making a family connection. And that was the name of my first book, Tennis and Kids, The Family Connection. But I went straight to B, and that uh, I reverse engineered it to the point where I had not even written an outline. And then when I wrote the outline, I, I, uh, I had $100 that I borrowed from a neighbor. And uh, I got on a plane and went to meet an agent who's going to drive me around in a, in a limo to see some big time publishers. And so I, I was, I'd never been to New York city. And so I was pretty fired up about it. Uh, it was so cold. I, I didn't have enough money at the time. Uh, I didn't even have a coat. I went to Bergdorf Goodman and I bought the most expensive long ultra suede coat. Uh, my mother would have, Oh my goodness. If she knew I'd have bought that on a credit card. And uh, I said at the plaza, which I couldn't afford. I, I didn't know how I, I would pay for this trip on the way back when the bill came, but I was so confident in the content with this little feeble outline. And um, I finally got back. I'd met everybody. I knew the American Express card bill was going to come in. I had to pay my neighbor the $100 back. And um, sure enough, when I went down to the mailbox about 20 some days later, 
there was a check for $10,000 from Doubleday. And uh, I was like, oh, Lord, uh, see it as if it's so. See it as it will be. And uh, that's how I really overcame that. I had another situation. I bought an indoor tennis club. And um, I didn't have enough money to buy the building and the land here in, in Chicago. It was one of my tennis type franchises. And um, I paid for the furniture and the fixtures and the name, 300000 And I paid that off in three years. And at the end of three years, I had a fixed uh, deferred closing on the real estate. And if the property went too high, of course, the guy didn't want to sell it to me. It did go that high in three years. So he, he hoped I didn't come up with 750 grand. And, and I didn't want 750. I needed it because it was tied to everything. And uh, if you don't have an indoor facility, you're not going to have an indoor tennis club in, in Chicago in the dead of winter. And um, I went in to see the banker who had given me a handshake that he could do it. And the banker said, uh, the bank's been sold. I can't do it. It's a no. And um, I saw four banks the next day. No, no, no. Four no's. I got five no's. And I got 29 days to come up with 750. I'm going to lose everything. And um, I started giving myself a speech at night as I walked around the block, telling the universe that I'm awesome and how important my tennis club was. And uh, the next day, four more no's. And 10 days ago, I had 35 no's. And one day, I, I, I'd had so many no's, I didn't even know if a yes was possible and on the last day the last bank they said yes and they loaned me the money and what changed and um, I changed in 30 days I started selling me on me and uh, the company about what we stood for I just started selling it out to the universe alone so think about what you think everybody your thoughts are crucial and um, I'm going to give everybody a tip. To me, it's the greatest discovery in my 69 years on this planet. Every thought you had today, time you wake up to go to bed, subconscious records it, replays it once at night to store the info. Okay? That's not the big discovery. This is quantifiably proven through four years ago. And I believed it for 45 years. Here it goes. Whatever you think, feel, whatever sensation you have in the last 30 minutes before sleep, your subconscious records it. And just like the rest of the day, there's a data dump and it downloads it, but it doesn't replay it once or twice or 10 times. In the last 30 minutes of sleep, whatever you think, whatever sensations, whatever you feel is replayed. 15 to 20 times while you're sleeping. So I've parlayed that with Alex Rodriguez and uh, Luke Donald being number one in the world. I've had them putt in their minds in the last 30 minutes. 10 putts, well, that's replayed 15 to 20 times each putt. So that's 10 times 250. And after seven to 10 days, it puts pressure on the subconscious of the same thing uh, to manifest it into its physical equivalent. Uh, unfortunately, 
that's the bad news because it'll replay the bad with the good because your subconscious don't care. You better think about what you think about, especially before you go to sleep at night. Go to bed happy, wake up happy, and adapt and adjust to your blueprint during the day. There's my formula. It's pretty simple. Well, simplicity is strength and simplicity is beauty. And I think it's fantastic. Uh, Jim, there's so much that you have to offer and that you continue to offer. But along the way, you had the opportunity to just kind of sit back and rest on those laurels and let the glory and the income flow in. What have you done to avoid that natural tendency toward mediocrity and slacking off and just not giving your best? How do you keep your edge? The last bad day was November the 8th, 1965. As my last bad day. I'm almost at 25,000 consecutive days. My best friend, Brian Judd, of the singing group, he was the brother of the Judds. He died that day. And um, I was with him when he died. And I don't know if it was real or imagined, but a voice came uh, while he's still in the room. Deceased said, Never have a bad day again. Laugh every day. So to honor Brian Judd, my best friend, when I was 15, I've never had a bad day since. I'll have a bad moment, but with my 90-second rule, it shall pass. Uh, On my tombstone in my will, I'm not trying to be morbid today, uh, there's one word. Uh, My wife's got to put it on there. I'd like it to be in neon. She probably won't put it in neon. I hope she puts it in there. It's in my will. One word. Ready? Ready. Next. (laughs) Next. Next life. Whatever it is. Next. And uh, so I keep moving. I also made uh, a promise to my mother I would take this to the masses. And, um, you know, for the first time in my life, it's the most negative I've ever seen America. I travel all over the world. It's the most depressed most divisive, most negative. Um, People act like victims and judges. And I'm like, where are the champions? This this country is built on champions, pioneers, Daniel Boone, not settlers. And um, I I just don't believe in settling for mediocrity. Uh, Being your genuine, authentic best self That's what it's about. And success is whatever you say it is. So it's not about money and it's not about gathering all kinds of material stuff or even having all the market share. I I tell every athlete, you're more than a baseball player. You're a son, you're a daughter. You know, I say that to the softball uh, players, the the women that play. And, um, you know, you're so much more than the CEO of a big company. And you're a friend and you've got your own self, your own spirituality. So you're much more than that. And uh, so I'm just driven to help people be the best they can be. Even even in death, I'm going to keep going somehow. We'll figure it out. We'll, we'll leave it. We'll leave it in perpetuity. <laughs> I like the sounds of that, Jim. Well, Jim, uh, the time with you goes so fast. I can't even believe it. Thank you from all of our listeners and personally from me for what you have to share and the way you live and the impact that you continue to have. We are so grateful for you. Well, being the zone, it's the only place to be. It's a real purposeful, calm, 
mental, physical phenomenon, and it's open to everybody. This isn't about superstar athletes or big CEOs. So be in the zone, everybody. It's it's the only place to be. Thank you so much. I'm I'm humbled uh, even to be on your show. I am. Thank you. If you enjoy this podcast, please make sure to subscribe. To stay updated on everything that the Action Catalyst is up to, make sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Action Catalyst Podcast and Twitter at Catalyst underscore Action. Thanks for listening.